Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fair Health for Older Adults understands that healthcare decisions are life-changing decisions. Strategic decisions, shared decisions. FairHealthForOlderAdults.org provides financial and educational information for older adults and caregivers planning for a treatment, procedure, or ongoing condition. Fair Health for Older Adults, healthy decisions for healthy aging. Explore FairHealthOlderAdults.org today. Campaign generously funded by the John A. Hartford Foundation. Hi, this is Jeff. Just before the show starts, uh, we recorded this on Monday, and obviously with news happening so far, so I just thought it was worth letting you know. Hopefully this will go up on Wednesday morning, but obviously if big events have happened since then that we haven't addressed, then that will be what it is. What most Hello and welcome to episode 163 of What Most People Think. And you know what I mean, there's been times recently where the idea of being in line with public opinion, you know, it's drifted a bit, economics have become a bit more left-wing. But if you get off social media, I do think that, you know, feeling, you know, sad about the Queen, a bit a bit sad and, you know, the end of an era and, um, you know, a sort of just something that had been there in your whole life, I would imagine would be an incredibly uh, common feeling. So I'm, I'm really glad that uh, uh, this week I've got with me, um, a, well, a, a grown-up to talk to, I'd say, uh, the brilliant Andrew Doyle. Welcome to the show, mate. Thanks for having me. I mean, I've started this off now like a really sombre, sombre chat here. But, yeah. Um, so I'm going to have to be really serious, basically. That's what you're you, saying. You, you can, you don't have to be. But I, I just, it's weird because obviously, as a comic, you know, guys on our side of the fence have been and have often been said, "Well, go and say the unsayable," and or would you dare make a joke about this now? And it, it was really odd because I sort of thought, "Well, I like the Queen. Why would I?" I think they've missed the point that we're joking about things that we think, but that but we're trying to not be put off by subjects other people find contentious. Yeah, exactly. I mean, making a joke, you can make a joke about anything. Although I have to say that most of the sort of snarky comments I've seen haven't been jokes at all. They've just been sort of really grisly, uh, sort of <laughs> nasty barbs about gloating about the death of an old woman. It's been really, really odd, actually. I think, you know, the phrase Twitter isn't Britain. I feel like this week more than any, because in, in last week's yeah. episode, it was a very Twitter-centric uh, episode. This is the opposite. I feel like almost no one is discussing this in the country in the way that people are either no, using it as a point in time to go, oh, let's roll out my kind of Republican arguments, or people who are, you know, getting incredibly sentimental about bees. There's, there's something weird, though, isn't there, about Republic, the, the way in which Republicanism has changed. Because from the looks of things, it's now a really middle class thing. It, you know, there's, there's something within all of this snark and celebration from from people who claim to be on the left about the Queen. Uh, they're really sort of having a go at the plebs, aren't they? There's a lot of this because because so many sort of people are are expressing either grief or sadness or something, and it's seen as oh, you stupid plebeians who are who are you know re- reveling in in being subjects, bootlickers. Um, you know. Yeah, it feels like. It, I and, like the because, taste of boot, though, Andrew. I do. It's a right, good taste. There we go. 
<laughs> They've got nice boots, you know. I, um, I'm, a, I'm a vegetarian and boots are leather, so I, I, I can't, I can't do well, that. Well, I mean, um, sort of for balance. I think, I think you're right in terms of characterising some of the, the reaction. One thing I have been reminded of is on the centre left, a lot of them do love the Queen. You know, if you look at uh, yeah. Blair and stuff, and, and a reminder perhaps of what the hard left find problematic about them is they are sort of establishment figures in a way, aren't they? They just want to have control of the establishment. They don't particularly want the establishment to change. They want to slightly tweak it to their way of doing things. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I'm not suggesting that the royal family isn't the establishment. Of course, it's <laughs> they're sort of the essence oh, yeah, of establishment. Yeah. But 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 the, the the attacks really aren't about them. The attacks are about those people who are perceived to be in their thrall. You know, sort of yeah, adulating yeah, yeah, yeah. them, and that that's what. I, and there's a weird, there's a weird way that it can be it can be twisted. It was the same with Brexit, wasn't it? Like, like you could you could pretend that you're having a go at the uh, the posh people who were all for Brexit, but, but at the same time you were really having a go at the seventy percent of the, the working class people who were. Who were for it, you know? I mean, one one thing that I would think, you know, and some of these things actually broke outside of 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 the bubble as such is the way that people are reacting to very small pieces of evidence as, to draw big conclusions. So one example is, um, you know, Prince William and uh, Kate and Meghan and Harry going on a walkabout, and there's one photo of uh, Meghan and Harry very close together and William and Kate very far apart. And I just thought. Yeah. For the most photographed people in the world, I guarantee if you hang around long enough, you'll find any exactly. combination. <laughs> Ultimately, but this is the point: we don't know anything yeah. about them, and I've I've never, you, you know, I'm I'm not I've never been someone who's been that interested in the royal family, uh, and I acknowledge that I just don't know who they are. Part of the Queen's appeal, I thought, part of the Queen's mm. appeal was that she didn't reveal what she thought about anything. Mm. I thought that was the whole that was the whole point. But in a way, that explains the outpouring of grief because for someone who's so inscrutable, you can you can project all kinds of ideas onto her she can be whoever you want her to be because she's been mm. so good at withholding all that stuff and 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 not getting involved in politics and not doing all, and you know finding a way and it's not just her but the monarchs who preceded her within the 20th century but finding a way to turn you know the royal family which is an aristocratic it used to be an aristocratic in club into something that is compatible with a, a mm. democracy you know that's re that's really interesting to me that it once went from being the governing class to the class that is servile to the demos. That's fascinating yes, yeah, to me. Yeah. And, that, and that's it's also a real achievement. I mean, one of the things that I thought that, that's been missed, like I totally get that there'll be people listening to this podcast who will be Republicans and people who who just don't get it. And, and fortunately, in real life, most people can take their feeling of not getting it and just get on with not getting it. But I, I think that the power of the royal family is sort of an, an analogous, right? Is that it's it's a family that you all know about. You all know about the the kind of fluctuating fortunes. You know, the good people in the family, the bad people in the family. And and so that's there's on the one hand, I do like the monarchy. I do like the queen. I, there's a part of my brain that knows it's an anachronism, but it's an anachronism that I like. I yeah. like the fact, I think it's unique to this, you know, it, before anyone jumps on it, it's obviously not unique to this country, but the way that we've held on to it says something. And then there's the other part of it, which is just a, it's just a trigger for feelings. I mean, the, in a family, the death of a matriarch, having been through it myself, is, is a huge, huge thing. And that's no shade on dads or something, but there is something about the connective tissue that, that a strong matriarch provides that, that once you see that played out in the public eye, you, you can't help but identify with it. That, I mean, that's what it's all about, really. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I think it's sad when anyone dies. I don't, I didn't know the Queen. So for me, it's no, no more sad or less sad than if anyone else dies. Mm. Um, but I think a lot of the, uh, however, I do understand why people feel it more particularly than, mm. than, uh, than other, other people who die in the public eye. Because like you say, well, there's this thing about the continuity. The thing about like you and I have never known a con the UK without her. Right. People, so people mm. of our age, you know, 
Most Isn't it people, nine out of ten of all living people have lived their whole lives with the Queen being in situ? Yeah, of, that's 90, on Earth. Yeah, ninety-four percent, right? Yeah. And that's not 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 even since she was born, but since her coronation, nineteen fifty-two. So, right, yeah. so ev- everyone, so many people, just she's she's like this thread to the past, which I think, and I think a lot of the mourning is about that. It's about this recognition of 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 change and mutability, yeah. and and th- and things moving on, and 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 also. The death, the kind of the death of some of the values that she represented, which have become really unfashionable, like sort of stoicism and duty well, and dignity yeah. and all that sort of stuff, which she, you know, whatever you think, even, you know, some of the most uh, interesting pieces I've read since the death of the Queen have come from Republicans, people like Brendan O'Neill at Spiked talking about, you know, who, who wants the monarchy to be abolished. But mm. he also really admired her uh, as a human being. And I suppose, you know, a point was made. I mean, straight away, I th- some of the hasty cancellations of stuff did seem a bit odd because if stoicism was the brand, suddenly going, cancel everything, just it just didn't... I mean, I understand that in the first couple of days after, it, but I, f- I found that odd, personally. Well, that stuff always happens. I mean, the, the, the news cycles were always going to run solely with this story for mm. about a week. Uh, that was something that was pre-planned and, and every news channel was going to do that. Well, I, I suppose, is it though, Andrew, is it an example of um, cancel culture or, or you know, no. like uh, a risk aversion from the other side? So their fear is we'd rather do too much than not enough. The, the closest uh, to the cancel culture that I've seen from the other side here has been things like that woman who was arrested in Edinburgh for holding an anti-monarchist sign. Yes. I only saw that last night. I saw it was weird. I had this really mm. snarky tweet from Ash Sarkar saying, oh, the free speech people at GB News aren't are conspicuously silent about this. I hadn't seen it. Yeah, and give us a minute. <laughs> I replied underneath saying, yeah, I don't think you should be uh, arrested for holding a sign. I mean, it, w- one of the things that makes me laugh about that is they'll often couch it in the terms of, you know, that person who's always talking about X, well, they have precious little to say about Y. You, and you, you go, equally, you never talk about X. You can't, You've never you said can't, anything about X. You can't do this thing about judging people about what they haven't commented on, right? There's so many <laughs> things going on, tragedies. in the. I mean, everyone could be guilty of that. And I think that, you know, just to tease it, you do have a new book out, uh, The New Puritanism. Yeah. You know, well, I was, I mean, in, that's it. The, the book The book is about precisely this kind of reaction, this kind of, uh, you know, where you reduce everything to that kind of tribalism. I'm really fascinated by that. And just finally on that note is that, you know, that it's, it's a growing thing, isn't it? Like one, we already had it with tweets. So people getting sacked because of tweets. But now what we have is people like with the photo of Wills and Kate and this six second clip of, uh, of uh, King Charles III, um, shooing somebody away, right? Right, so one, it's a six-second clip. I always think, what happened just before, what happened just after? Course, yeah. we, we know at least a little bit of the context was that what happened just before was his mum died, and what happened just after was he was undertaking something massive under the eyes of the world's media, right? So even if he was a bit privileged, and uh, then I think you can allow that. You can also factor in he's a 70-year-old bloke. I don't know if you've got any union family. They're, they're fairly fucking irritable people at the best of times. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen a lot of people who aren't king do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also, and it's a funny thing working in the TV industry is like, you think that's bad behavior. Oh yeah. My God. Get, wait get, till you see the star turn. Get to know some comedians closely. You well, know. <laughs> I'm honestly, and it's accepted. So, you know, I literally saw people commenting. I've got, I thought I've worked with you on a TV thing and I've seen you tolerate worse behavior than that yeah. from someone just cause they were the fucking host. Right. Yeah. So, and, and but, but, but where it got extrapolated further, and this actually did reach outside of just Twitter, was like, this is what you're getting. They, you know, yeah. you, you, that basically they want to prove their point so desperately that they think six seconds can kind of epitomize all, you know, all that shit I've been saying for 25 years. Yeah. This. To, to be honest, this is 
largely what my book is about. I wrote this book, The New Puritans. The subtitle is How the Religion of Social Justice Captured the, the Western World. But really what it's about is the way in which this very powerful coterie, very small in number, but really great in power, uh, are now in control of all of our major institutions, be they academic, mm. educational, political, the police, the army, the NHS, the law. Um, but they, they consider themselves the underdogs. They consider themselves victims and of, of oppression. But most importantly, they're expecting us to, 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 to see the world through their eyes. And their eyes, they've created like a pseudo-reality. It isn't the real world as it is. It's the way they see the world. Mm. And they do that through things like you're describing there. Misrepresentation, mischaracterization. I don't think I've ever had... Well, all the people who, who have attacked me online and get really angry, I don't think I've ever had anyone actually faithfully represent what my actual view is in order to attack it. It's pretty much always misrepresented. It. And, and, it, mm. and then, it, you know, it, then it doesn't matter what the real world is. It doesn't matter, for instance, that J.K. Rowling has never said anything transphobic or hateful. All that matters is people say that she is a transphobe and hateful. You know, that, and that, that to me is really mm. a problem because we're losing sight of the truth. The truth does matter. Like if I wanted mm. to attack me online or if I took issue with something that I'd have said, what I would do is I'd read what I've actually said and engage with the points and, and point out where I think I'm wrong. That's how I do it. Like if I if I have an, an issue with someone, Such a, you know. Okay, boomer. All right, granddad. <laughs> facts, arguments. Well, we will come back to that talking about your book, which I mean, just spoiler alert, I, I, it is fantastic. I think also it's got one of the uh, best opening lines of a book in the first chapter. Can you remember what the, the opening line of the first chapter is? I can, but I don't want to say because I, I, I don't. You count the swear words in your. Uh, uh, no, that's do, that's done now. That's done. Uh, okay. <laughs> which will bring me to the next thing. But can you just the tell the? Yeah. So the opening line of my book is. You're a fucking Nazi cunt. <laughs> okay. Now, you mentioned the uh, the cuss count thing. That was done away with. I don't know if you've been on since, but now we've got a thing called Domain Talking Point, which is one of our super uh, board-level CEO patrons, David Domain. He picks up from random little things in the previous week. So we're going we're gonna to pivot very hard here into okay. just a bit of parish news. Um, he's, so I asked a question about... I, I, I did an analogy about someone getting sugar glass broken over their head. Then I suddenly thought I'd made up sugar glass. Right, you know, like stunt glass. Uh, yeah. Sugar glass is a genuine thing and is actually made of sugar. Sugar is dissolved in water. The mixture is heated to 50, 150 degrees centigrade. I was going to say 1500 degrees centigrade. I think that's Venus, isn't it? Maybe not, not even <laughs> hotter than that. Uh, corn syrup or glucose is then added to stop the sugar from recrystallizing. Sugar glass must be used shortly after creation. Otherwise, it absorbs moisture from the atmosphere. So there you go, sugar glass. Well, I've used thing. sugar glass. Uh, in two different productions. I, I, I wrote a play that toured Scotland, which was a political play set in Northern Ireland called Borderland. And, and there's a, there was a key moment in the, that play where the assailant had to smash a bottle over someone's head. And we, yeah. so we used it, we had, because it was a long tour, it was like two months. We had to buy up all these sugar glass bottles. They're not cheap. Um, and yeah, it's, it's quite easy it. to get it wrong because if you hold it by the, 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 the very top and you swing it, it often breaks in your hand. So you, there's yeah. a way to hold it so that it smashes properly. Because that would, if it broke before it hit the head, it would ruin the whole show. It would have killed it. Must uh, be frustrating for the these sugar glass manufacturers because sometimes I'd imagine they can create quite attractive looking pieces. You know, like they, they go to they town can. on it. They're if they've moved, and it's, it's sort of there's almost like if I was a shit poet right now. I would write a poem about the sugar glass maker because I felt <laughs> that there was such kind of uh, symbolic value in that yeah. everything they ever create will be destroyed. And it's also a tragedy insofar as, you know, it, it, it doesn't break in the same way that glass breaks and you can yeah. see the difference. So the sugar glass maker is forever condemned to be making a substandard <laughs> product. 
The Sugar Glass Maker. That's the poem. Which which poet would... Because we spoke about the Poet Laureate uh, the other week. Did you know, by the way, that the Poet Laureate is no longer compelled to write poems about great public events? I, I mean, if there's ever... I, I thought that was their job. Who should write The Sugar Glass Maker? Well, uh, I mean, that sounds like quite a poignant... <laughs> or it could be like someone like John Cooper Clark, the sugar glass maker. Everything he ever made was fucking destroyed in the gates of Hollywood. I by... think, no, <laughs> I think something more elegiac. I, I actually imagine Mervyn Peake could have written a good poem called the sugar glass maker. He, he writes poems about these, 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 he writes a really good poem called the, the, the cocky walkers. These sort of, yeah. these groups of um, working class lads who sort of hang out in the shadows, smoking cigarettes. And he, he really captures that. He, uh, he'd be good at this. Well, look, I think this is a good one for uh, the listeners. What most people think, UK at gmail.com. If you want to write, and let's be clear, this has to be a really shit sixth form poetry, and it's got to be written in the style of a guy that thinks he's superior to it. Like the, the kind of lad in like lower six who's read Marks and is, is trying yeah, to get off with okay. girls by being right on. So so do, so do write those in and we'll, um, we'll pick up on those next week. Uh, new patrons, we've got somebody, a board member, and as you know, Andrew, from before, we always try and speculate on them based on their names. David Smith, welcome to the board. I hope your car was arriving on time today. I hope that there was, the driver had nice cold bottles of water and that the Wi-Fi in the car, in my imaginary world of being a, a board member for this uh, worked. We will actually have a few uh, questions for you from VIPs and board members later in the show. Uh, but David Smith, I mean, you've given me precious little to work with there. I, mean, I you think could... that's, a, that's a pseudonym. I mean, he's given you that precisely because you can't work with that material. There's, David there's... Smith. I mean, it, I mean, that is, if you'd have gone most popular boy's name in 1980, David, yeah. uh, most popular surname in England since forever, Smith. David yeah. Smith. I mean, that's there was it. a point with, with Smiths whereby it was always a something Smith, right? Like a blacksmith or a goldsmith. Yeah, yeah. But once you drop that part of it, it really doesn't mean anything, no, does exactly. it? It is, it is mean. David Maker. But it's quite, but the blandness of it, it could work for someone who is like a, a really scary Cray Brothers type person. Mm. That I think that can work. When they have really boring names, that to me can be quite chilling. I'm, I'm David I'm, Smith. You know, I'm John. Davy Boy Smith. Yeah. Wasn't he, wasn't he the British Bulldog? The guy that went over to WWF? I mean, that's not my area of, of expertise, but I will take your word for that. He might have retired, although there is something telling me that like a lot of those guys that did steroids, uh, did wrestling in the 90s, that he didn't exactly make it. So if it is you, David Boy Smith, thank you for the way that you represented us overseas <laughs> during the 90s. Your, your match up against uh, the Ultimate Warrior was, for me, a classic never to be topped. Um, we got one VIP this week, Stuart Butcher. Stuart Butcher. Oh, oh. Stuart Butcher, you, if you don't live in Dartford, right, Stuart Butcher, the Butcher's family, and if you didn't holiday at the nearest coastal resort to you that went in a straight line from where you lived, right? Yeah. I think it's Aberystwyth. It's Aberystwyth from Birmingham, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, Aberystwyth <laughs> from Birmingham. And where I lived in South London, we literally went straight down to Folkestone. That was it. Yeah. I remember, yeah. I remember when we used to... I remember Folkestone for a while. It had a Sainsbury's on the beach. It's so, it so, <laughs> so fucking grim. I think Folkestone's become a bit hipsterish now, but... Uh, but Stuart Butcher, on that's an, that's another poem. Sainsbury's on the beach. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sainsbury's on the beach. The illumined puke orange puncturing oh, you know the charcoal grey. It's it's Betjeman, isn't it? This all of this yeah, stuff is Betjeman. Yeah. That's what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. And who's the one that did the plays? The, the northern guy that everyone does an impression of. Alan. Oh, um, you mean uh, look back in anger? Uh, guy. Oh, I can't oh, remember oh, his name. The... Alan Bennett. Alan Bennett. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I used to be an English teacher. I couldn't sound more ignorant than I currently do. What a 
Okay, a quick thank you and a fuck you. And, and unlike a lot of these lazy comics here who can't find it within themselves to give gratitudes, Andrew does have one of each. So what is your thank you? Uh, my thank you has got to be to all of the people who uh, tweeted me very angrily when, when I announced the uh, the publication of my new book, uh, yeah. because I really drew attention to it and proved the point of the book, because um, a lot there were a lot of tweets saying, I'm going to burn this book, or is it any good for lighting mm. fires? Uh, I had one saying that, that he would go into the bookshop, kick it under the shelves so it could rot in darkness. Uh, I had another one saying, this looks like the kind of manifesto that someone would quote before they go up and shoot up a neighbourhood. I mean, really unhinged... Wow. So detached from what the book and actually is. they often like in their moment of moral certainty they sort of forget that that is like a kind of unpleasant joke in a lot of ways. It's really unpleasant. But the book is about why people have become these sort of frenzied and they've started to imagine that there are evil people everywhere and they project these this demonization onto people and there they are doing it. It's like I couldn't ask for people to prove the, the central thesis mm. of the book more clearly. And there were lots of these tweets. I mean, really quite unhinged tweets. So, so I'd like to thank all of those. Uh, people because it really did it really i mean did it felt it. like there was a brackets fuck you in there as well <laughs> uh yeah well look you think i'm being passive aggressive is what the uh suggestion no no is. i i I, th- I think that is that whenever i do the thank you and the fuck you the thank you is often me thanking the arseholes <laughs> for giving me something <laughs> to talk about and what is the formal fuck you i think that's got to be about the uh mermaids the the the, uh, the trans charity who are currently taking the lgb alliance to court in an attempt to strip them of their charity status because they mm. uh, they want to represent same-sex attracted people. It's absolutely, and this is done under the guise of progressivism. So it is now, there are now groups claiming to be progressive who are trying to stop gay people from organizing in their own interest. It's really, really you know, it's, it's, it's maddeningly homophobic. It's very, very bizarre uh, that that so can happen. So mermaids, just to, to do a bit of jargon busting here. So mermaids are... So they're a charity, a youth trans charity, and they believe in this idea of gender identity ideology. They believe in simply affirming, you know, when a child feels some discomfort with their gender, they believe that should mm. just be affirmed and they should be put on puberty blockers and fast-tracked into medication, mm. etc. <clears throat> and so they have this very clear sense that anyone who, who is sceptical about gender identity ideology, which is 99% of the population, are transphobes, are hateful. And because LGB Alliance was set up... So when you it, say 99% of the public gender are sceptical, do you mean sceptical about the idea that you can change your biological sex or that you can identify as a different sex? Well, well no, you can't change your biological sex. That's a, that's a matter of fact. That, no, but that's what I, I meant about the idea of that. No, no, what people are sceptical about is that we have an innate gendered soul um, mm. that sometimes doesn't match our body. That's, that's a, a, a quasi-religious belief that very few people hold. Mm. And I support anyone's right to hold that belief. I'm not against people who yeah. believe that they have a gender identity. I don't have a gender identity. Most people don't. Um, and what troubles me is the I, attempts to impose that religious belief on the population as a whole through governmental policy, which is exactly what is happening, which is why the Tavistock Clinic had to shut because it turned out to be very, very dangerous for young children. Um, and I think LGB Alliance, which has been monstered as hateful and transphobic, all the things it absolutely isn't, with no evidence, again, no evidence at all. It's just run by a couple of old lesbians. Who, who, you know, one of them was... Um, There's another poem, a couple of old couple lesbians. Of old lesbians. One of them was a, a, one of the earliest uh, gay rights activists in the Gay Liberation Front. The other one was part of Stonewall before it went mad. And the we, what, what really bothers me at the moment is we have got rehabilitated homophobic tropes rebranded as progressive, right? We, we've, got, mm. we've got, you know, charities like Mermaids claiming that young kids who were gender non-conforming like I was... Uh, are, are potentially trapped in the wrong body and it's, it's a really regressive conservative view 
of gender differences. So, and I think a charity trying to take away another charity's charitable status through the courts because mm. they disagree with the because they have a, an that, ideology. It's dodgy. It's really dodgy. That principle. I mean, that does jar. I mean, just to sort of like you know do my BBC presenter thing. You know, is there a bit of like LGB alliance? Obviously, I'm sure for the most part, good people. But do they have like a militant wing? I mean, or, or are there people, I guess, that have uh, attached themselves to it, that use it as, as a cover just to say transphobic stuff that they wanted to otherwise say? Well, no, because there's no... <clears throat> it doesn't have a, a membership system. It's just... Pe- it's it's just a... It's run by mm. lesbians and gay people. And it's just... And, you know, some... <clears throat> Um, I don't know how you could attach yourself to something which is so clear in its intentions. I mean, if you look at their website, they talk about... The, you know, they believe that trans people need to be able to live with equal rights and dignity. That's just not their fight. Hmm. The fight is for same-sex attracted people. But you've got people like Stonewall okay. redefining homosexuality as same-gender attracted, which is not what it means. And this is really bad for young gay kids. And it's, it's you know, it's it's really hard for them, I think. I mean, there was a, there was a Channel 4 clip that's doing the rounds at the moment hmm. where it's like a, a, a dating show for teenagers. And there's a young girl who identifies as male and what they've done, and there's a young boy who's just come out as gay, he's 19. And they and he's coming along saying, Yeah, I'm really excited. I've just come out as gay and I'm really excited to meet another guy and all the rest. And they've paired him up with a girl. But she 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 identifies as male. It's like this is really cruel. This is it feels a bit like conversion therapy. It feels a bit like, you know, you're gonna have to disbelieve the evidence of your eyes. We know that you're same-sex attracted. But in this new world, you're going to have to pretend you're not actually gay. That is one of the moral paradoxes is, is of sort of disregarding or even lowering the status of, of sex within how we define who we are, is that that is what homosexuality is. It, I mean, every part of the word alludes to the thing, right? So important, right? Gay rights were secured on the basis of the acknowledgement of biological sex differences. Mm. And if what they used to say to us was, oh, you just haven't found the right girl yet. You know, if, you, if you're not attracted to someone with a vagina, you've got a mental health issue. And now progressives say that they say that, you know, you've got you've got activists saying if lesbians aren't interested in sleeping with someone with a penis, they're transphobic and hateful or they're suffering from some kind of trauma. No, they're gay. That's the, that's mm. they're gay. Right. We don't have anything wrong with us. We're not perverts. There is no difference now between the homophobes of the 1980s and 1970s and the Stonewall Act activist of today and that's really i think that's really horrible is it is, is it possible within stonewall you know it's quite a big organization that there are people trying to wrestle back kind of control to their more their sort of former goals or, or is it a complete capture it's not possible because you know the ceo of stonewall nancy kelly has hmm. said that lesbians who don't want to sleep with men are the same as sexual racists so she is now she's re- really she said that yeah. wow she's wow. now regurgitating um, the, the homophobic tropes of yesteryear as though it's something progressive and new right and, and I go yeah. back to the, the liberal point. It's always the liberal solution is the only way. It's like anyone mm. has the right to identify however they like, use whatever names they like, pronouns they like about themselves, whatever. But they can't impose that on other people. And you certainly shouldn't be shaming gay people for being attracted to members of their own sex exclusively. I mean, right? it does feel weird that you have to say that. <laughs> right. But that's, and, um, I, and, and the way they're dealing with it is they're trying to pretend that people like Bev and Kate mm. at the LGB Alliance are monsters and they hate trans people all this stuff that just is not true and one thing i would say just before we sort of crack on is i am not 
yet at a point. You know, like the the word queer now, which yeah. is, that, that's controversial in a way because it's like it sort of pulls together a lot of very disparate things. I I'm not going to use that as a way of describing people because I I feel like you know Admiral Akbar in Return of the Jedi. It's a trap. I I just feel like at some point in the next year or two. They're oh. gonna they're gonna declassify that word. I'm going, oh fuck. You wanna be I... careful because because that word queer, it's like it's like uh black people reclaiming the N-word, right? Gay people, mm. same-sex attracted people can reclaim that word that was used against us for so many years, right? We we were that was the that was the insult that was used against me. That was the thing that homophobes said, mm. right? But now it's being reclaimed by straight people who want to be kinky. Right. So now now mm. people are describing themselves as queer. You see, like sort of this amazing queer couple. It's like, no, that's a straight couple. What are you talking about? Uh, they just yeah. identify as gender fluid or whatever. It's like, no, if, if anyone's going to reclaim queer, it should be us. We are. Uh, we will come back to Andrew's book. But obviously, you know, last week was a big week and uh, we did have a new prime minister. And we're just going to react a little bit to the, the early days of the trust era. Trust mm. I don't know. <laughs> Right, so first thing, I've, I've got to issue an apology because in last week's podcast, I, I saw that Trust was going to become uh, sworn in or whatever it is, and I predicted that she would absolutely bomb at PNQs and that it would make Starmer look charming and, and kind of like a real raconteur by comparison. And, and it really didn't play out like that. What, what was odd, I think, was that she had this slow, deliberate delivery and it was almost like watching Jeffrey Boycott bat or... Someone in the middle lane of a motorway driving at 55 miles an hour, everyone's bibbing, flashing. They don't care because they're happy to drive at that speed. And she actually put in a fairly solid PMQs. She actually answered questions, which was interesting. And and, and so what happened then, and I thought this was interesting, was left-wing commentators who have been very critical of the Tories for a while, a few of them held their hands up and said, fair play, that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, she did okay. And then I saw immediately people were monstering them going, wow, you, what, you've just turned, you're a Tory shield. And I thought, God... I mean, yeah. she just transparently did do better than we thought she would, didn't she? Yeah, and that, uh, that it's going to be, you're going to see a lot of performative outrage from comedians about her trying to pretend she's this monster because she has to be for them and she has to be mm. for, for activists as well. The idea that, that she's just like quite normal and clearly just quite nice, but not particularly charismatic, you know, and that's, yeah. that's, that's the, the problem that she's facing. You know, we now have a, 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 a political world where, we have the presidential style now, ever since Blair, we've had that, ever since Thatcher, really. Um, and so to go from someone like who's bombastic and charismatic yeah. like Boris Johnson to someone who, who really isn't like that, it's a change of direction for the, uh, the, the, the prime minister of this country. And it, but, it, but it's, you know, people are going to find it hard. I mean, like you say, she's a solid performance. She's promoting some conservative values, which is unusual. Uh, that blew people's minds, didn't yeah. it? A person, a, a person who campaigned on a conservative ticket becomes leader of the Conservative Party, pledges to do conservative things. People are like, yeah. what? It's going to because be... that shows. Yeah, sorry, Joe. sorry, mate. No, but but that you know, and I, I've 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 already seen a few sort of comics struggling with this because what what are you really going to attack here? What what is there to get annoyed about? What is there to get annoyed Well, about? but that's the point, is go at her on... She's got plenty of political and ideological things you can go against her on. She's been part of a government which has had a chequered performance in some regards. Sure. All that stuff is there, but I think what they liked, in a way, was that Boris had so much personal baggage and they like the personal element mm. of him. Look at him, he's a mess. He's scruffy. He's not a good father. He's cheated on his... All that stuff is like... It, it plays into that idea of this person is a terrible person and you must not like them for the same reasons that I don't. And and, and Trust gonna, is going to represent... Um, a, a, a different problem and you know 
the, the, the discussion that followed about some of the appointments, this dismissal of Tory diversity. I mean, one of the things was the, the, the comments about the health secretary, which was, I mean, like, you know, so there's this photo of her with a cigar drinking and yeah, stuff. Yeah, and she's, sure. she's, you know, she's a fat woman. Um, and, and, and people suddenly, like, you know, the people that often say be kind were like, Look at her, she's fat. She's fat. Look at the fatty. She can't be health secretary. And I thought, I don't remember like being healthy yourself being like a criteria to be health secretary. I remember I remember this doctor once, right? He smoked 40 a day, still yeah. lectured people about smoking. But we took it because he had warm hands. I know doctors are the word. They, they, I mean, you, you would drink a lot as a doctor. It's a yeah. stressful job. You know, it's like, no, absolutely. I, I do love the way the be kind mob always hoist themselves by their own petard. It's you know they they oh. they always they're always the the, the the playground bullies, the most vicious, and the they, I guess they think they you know, they're doing it because they're they're on the right side of history. And so well, moral certainty creates gaping blind spots. But the other I mean, one, one of the things is the diversity issue. You know, that I still see mm. people saying the Tories are racist because that's the only reason that they're hiring all these uh, brown and black people. It's like, so, so wait a minute. So when they don't do that, they're racist because they're not. And when they yeah. do, that's just to cover their racism. I mean, this is a, we just, I think, I think maybe the adults in the room have to come around to the view that maybe given the Tories record of promoting more ethnic minority people to cabinet positions than any other party, they're just not racist, right? Like maybe, maybe they should just reach that point. Well, there. and that's the problem is because you're almost creating a, a world where a black person who happens to have conservative views, and if you look at second generation immigrants in this country, a lot of those communities will have at least socially conservative views. So it's not yeah. this radical thing. You're almost saying there's no way they could su- succeed on their own terms, which is, surprise, surprise, sounds kind of racist, right? Yeah. And, and also, I don't understand why people can't just sort of nuance it a little bit and say, look, all evidence of diversity in the highest office of state is good. However, let's not disregard the fact that these two guys, Quasi Kwarteg and James Cleverly, both went to private school. You can say both of those things, but what they then do, they just literally would dismiss it because they went to private school. Now, I'm going to speculate a little bit here, uh, but they both went to private school, what, in the, in the 80s? I would imagine, even if your family had a bit of money, being a black person at a private school in, in the eighties wasn't exactly a complete bed of roses. Like right. it would have had its own its own challenges in itself. I, sh- I just find it troubling the way that, that something happens that's inconvenient to their arguments. So suddenly but it, but they again, unleash a whole box of fireworks in every direction. Again, they they you know they always use language to mean its opposite, and they always go on about diversity. Mm. But diversity is the thing they fear the most. So they they want to believe that all black people must think the same way and vote the same way. You know, it, it even goes down to sexuality with uh, Peter Thiel, the Republican, the entrepreneur who appeared at the Republican conference. And then mm. there was an article, I think in Out magazine, one of the major American gay magazines saying Peter Thiel might sleep with men, but he's not gay. So, so because their whole identity is based on, uh, firstly, it's based on conformity, political and ideological conformity. Mm. Uh, but it's it's it, it it has no room for the idea of the individual within these demographic groups. Everything is reduced to group identity, and it is the opposite of diversity. It really is. What most people think. The I mean, one you know, before anyone gives it, you're you're back to being a shill for the Tories, Jeff. There was there was some cabinet appointments which were surprising, and the clear out. Of, of Rishi Sunak allies, I thought was a bit short-sighted. One guy I'm surprised is still there is Jacob Rees-Mogg because he does feel a bit like a leftover relic from the weirdness of Brexit, you know? Yeah. Like he just, it was funny for a while. And you know, you know, like you have a weird house party and you get up the following day and at 11 a.m. there's still that fucking weird guy there making himself eggs Benedict, right? I just, I just felt, I'm really surprised. I, I know that they think he's a talisman, but I actually think that they, they hold him back. And I, and I always thought that with, 
Rhys Mogg, like I have very different views from him on abortion, but I always respected the fact that he seemed to say what he thought and stand by it, but he's actually contradicted himself loads since he's been in yeah. cabinet. I just think it's time for him to kind of shuffle his way back to the back benches. Mind you, you want a bit, I mean, I, I quite like holding on to some of those characters and, you know, you know, he's, he's, mm. he's an interesting person. Maybe he's very good at the job. And there's a lot going on that we don't know about, you know, it could be that simple. But I mean, but that's the point. He feels like that classic backbencher intervention. Like that's who he's there for is to stand up and make that speech that no one else could make because they, because they uh, don't have as much collective responsibility. Um, you know, with Labour, uh, what was interesting, I thought, was Starmer. He, he looked a bit, he didn't know how, he hadn't worked out trust. He didn't really know where to take it. Mm. And, um, he did this weird thing where instead of, I would have gone, right, it's her first PMQs. What you want is a 40-second bit for the news, right? Yeah. I, w- I would have gone massive on new leader, same old tour. You know, just 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 really like route one shit. But um, but he did this protracted six-part semantic riddle about corporate. <laughs> because he's a barrister. <laughs> well, this is it. He was trying to like weave a web and I could see Angela Rayner, right? Now, we, we mustn't claim to mind read. She does not rate that man at all. Like, if you watch her, like, she gets more annoyed by a Starmer dancing around open goals than she does by anything the yeah. Tories have said. And, 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 and it's strange because people have sort of thought that because Keir Starmer is, you know, I think he's probably a nicer bloke than Boris Johnson. So, but that means that they've elevated him to a place as a human being and as a political operator that he, he, he doesn't exist on. He's not that strong. He can't be prime minister. He can't win. He can't win an election. I just don't think there's any chance he can do that. There are too many, too many of the, or too many of the Labour voters associate him with the the disaster of the second referendum policy in the last manifesto. That mm. was that was his brainchild. You know, it's, as you know, seventy percent of Labour constituencies voted to leave. So then, when you've got yeah. your party saying no, you got it wrong. You better vote again. That's really a slap in the face, in in a way that you know. I mean, it's so uh, extreme because they ended up voting Tory, which is something that those people would would not have done lightly, yeah, yeah. you know. And so the idea that that Starmer, he's too tainted with all of that. Um, he's too. I mean, I you know, he's too hamstered. He's too. He, he, he's not the person to rebuild the red wall. I have an issue with him because of his um, time at the Crown Prosecution Service. I think he he did some disastrous things for 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 due process in this country. He, it was his responsibility. It was he. It was because of him that they replaced the word complainant with the word victim in official police policy. So now that which implicitly bypasses due process, you know, it's why um, the idea that everyone must automatically be, be, be believed if they make an accusation, whereas a lot of people have been falsely accused and had their lives ruined. We even had the police withholding evidence on multiple rape cases, even though they knew the accused was innocent, but they withheld the information to secure the conviction because there was so much pressure from the Crown Prosecution yeah. Service to convict. That's his fault. That happened on his watch, that's serious. So I don't think, and I don't think it's forgivable. I don't think that's morally forgivable. I think that also with the, you know, the problem that Labour have got is if, is if on the one hand they say we can discount James Cleverley and Quasi Quarte because they went to private school, Liz Truss didn't. She went to a comp. So the problem (laughs) is you just then throw the spotlight back on something else, and you go, you look at a lot of Labour MPs, you go, a lot of you went to either grammar schools or, you know, or sent your kids, sent your kids to them, and yeah, exactly. You know, they've they've tried to use these attack ads. They've used a recording of Liz Truss saying that uh, British workers lack graft, right? And I think. I think that'll backfire because this is the thing about being British is you think no one else works as hard as you. No one else is as tired as you. No one else is as busy as you. You know, no one else has as weird dreams as you do. No one is as ill as you. I just, I just think that they they seem to show sometimes a real lack of uh, knowledge of ordinary people in the way, in the messages they try and circulate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I didn't think what she said was offensive at all, to be honest, but maybe, you know, 
I, I, I do understand why some people thought it was that it was kind of what was it she actually said that basically we, we need we need to work harder as a country we don't work as hard as is that what she was saying well I mean also it, it was slightly odd because you're you know you get a group of people post Brexit that tend to kind of orientalize every other country you know in every country in Europe and are happy for us to sort of well, sort of slam I mean. why is that why would that be a problem for those people yeah, yeah, and 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 the same people that you know will sit there and sort of say, "Well, it's disgraceful that we don't have any kids that will pick the fruit that's rotten on the trees." It would never fucking occur to them to go and pick that fruit, would yeah. it? Well, but again, it comes down <laughs> to this thing of just trying to pick a small thing that they can attack, anything they mm. can sort of latch onto. Didn't they do it as well? That that thing resurfaced of her talking about cheese and talking about how. Uh, you know, we, we import too much cheese and it's really shocking. Yeah, the pork market speech. I mean, I, I, I've said this. I think that, that that's fun for now, but there is a chance that will become like the orange man bad thing. You just think a way to win an argument is just by saying pork markets. I think what I would say in sum up to this section is that, I, you know, I didn't expect this. I really didn't. You can listen back to last week's episode, but I would say that that people, you know, obviously events overtook after that. And, you know, you had people getting angry. This was the funniest thing. People getting angry about the quality of uh, Liz Truss's curtsy. People who are rampant anti-monarchists. I wouldn't think that you'd be that bothered about the quality of a, <laughs> of a curtsy. But, you know, it, the early signs suggest that maybe, yeah, they're a bit rattled. Okay, we're just going to do a quick uh, hype here. Actually, we're just going to welcome um, some more patrons. We've got Diane Theobald, who just sounds like, I don't know, like a superhero's girlfriend. Diane, Diane Theobald. Theobald. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I quite like that. Diane. Yeah, it's pretty cool, right, isn't it? I mean, that, that sounds like uh, an author. What 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 era would she have oh, been no, an no. author Diane in? Diane Theobald sounds like young 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 fiction. Fiction for teenagers, I think. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some some seven-part billion-pound grossing <laughs> thing about, <laughs> about a girl with a magic vagina. Um <laughs> James Hancock, James Hancock. We got some British names this week, haven't yeah. we? England, James, Jimmy Hancock. I mean, yeah. that is so funny, isn't it? You change James Hancock is a QC. Jimmy Hancock is a murderous gangster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so right. And we and we got Grant Hustler, who I just oh, cannot. That's I mean, not that's ridiculous. your fucking That's, name. Not, that's not your fucking. That's not real. That's that's not no G Hustler. I mean, come on. <laughs> when you abbreviate, it gets even more. Fantastical. And finally, we've got uh, Kate. So we, if it's a one-worder, we need to speculate why Kate can't give us her full name. Well, because it'll be and really may- bad. It'll be a really awful name. Well, we often think that maybe she's working in an institution where alignment with a fascist like me, maybe it's Kate Middleton. Maybe, maybe it is. Or maybe her surname's Goebbels or something. <laughs> yeah. Is there any people left with that surname? I haven't David Domain. David Domain, do your thing. Do your research. Okay, uh, let's get on to talking about Andrew's new book. Okay, so we mentioned earlier the first sentence of the book in the the New Puritanism. It's called the New. Am Puritans. I getting that right? The New Puritan. Oh, fucking, hell, I did this with your last book, Free Speech and White Man. There's a plug for that. <laughs> The New Puritans. And, and we mentioned that, that that sentence. So we're just going to circle back to that a little bit. Um, is I think I know who that person was. Obviously, I won't say so. Yeah. Um, so the fact that you haven't said who they are, I thought was interesting. You know, is that to avoid a shitstorm? Is, is no, I, I mean, if you if you don't want to go anywhere near this area, I totally respect it. But, no, no, it's fine. But, no, no, it's simply that, you know, it's someone in the public eye. And I don't, mm. I, I don't want to be... 
I don't want to be settling scores through the book. It's because it's not about that. Uh, the, the, the book yeah. is about broader problems that we are facing in society at the moment. These, this, this, this cultural revolution that is taking place, this, this shift where, where, you know, I mean, people are so baffled because they can see that this ideological movement is making us more racially divided. They can see that it's illiberal. They can see that it, that it poses a threat to liberal values, freedom of speech, all of these things. And yet it describes itself in progressive terms like social justice, like anti-racism, like equity. And so people are really baffled because obviously you want to be on board with those kind of things. Um, uh, but then when th th people are starting to notice that actually it, it achieves the reverse of what it purports to do. In other words, it is a, re a regressive movement packaged as progressive. And that makes it really hard to, to, to fight. And I think if I started to use my book to get back at people who have been horrible to me, um, then it becomes about my ego and not about. No, I think, I think that's a great, that's a great answer, but I, I think you're not human if it, those moments don't hurt a bit and, and whether or not, and you know, I've seen like some of the abuse you get or the things people presume about you. Does, I just wonder, that, does that drive you on or give you cause for caution? I think you're much bolder than I am as a person in this respect. I just think, uh, well, I talk about in the later part of the book about the impulse for revenge and, and why, so civilized people need to resist it <laughs> you know and i think mm, um yeah uh, because so much of what we call cancel culture now is vengeful that's what it is it's a retributive idea concept and it it it, it, it panders to our most base instincts uh and i think one of the 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 the, the key things of being an adult and um, being socialized properly and being in a post-enlightenment world is that we don't allow our emotions to overrule our our reason uh, and, mm. and I think that's part, the whole culture war is really about that is the way in which people have allowed that to happen. And um, yeah, so I don't think, I don't think also because I, I'm sort of exhausted with tribalism, I'm exhausted with the kind of the spiral. Yeah, people will misrepresent me all the time and attack me and, and say, I believe things I don't believe. Does it really help for me to hit back in the same way? Does that, or that, does that just... No, I mean, ironically, I mean, you're talking... You're talking about sort of quasi-religious values, but you are turning the other cheek in, in some respects these days, you know. And I, I noticed that uh, in your, unless I've misunderstood what turning the other cheek means, but but sort of taking the higher ground and just focusing on the discussion. When, when so, you can't talk to these people. Like, so what I've really realised in writing the book is that, you know, you need to reserve your energies for those who are still capable of adult discussion. And those who are completely ideologically captured, the individual I'm talking about in the opening prologue is completely captured now. Really intelligent person, but is totally uh, immersed in this ideology and, and can no longer think rationally. He can't do it. So it's not possible to talk to someone like that. So you, I think you just have to divorce yourselves from them and, and, and reserve your attention for, for adults, for people who have retained the ability. It's powerful because, as you say, you were you were a godparent to that person's child, and it it does sort of start off with. I think it was a useful first example because it was personal. But you quickly move into uh, the analogy between the sort of witch trials. Uh, in Salem and there's this there was this sentence which I thought was a great sentence in the throes of victimhood these children had found the means to become the most powerful members of the community yeah. is this interest about that contrast of children and powerful is that is that somehow how you see some of the culture war debate? absolutely I mean that's that I, I see it as infantilism writ large I mean it, you know in Salem you had these girls little girls who suddenly had the power to kill whoever they wanted they just mm. pointed at someone and said which and they were believed and they were believed on the basis of this thing called spectral evidence, which was lived experience. Their truth was that they could see these witches. And that was the only evidence that was required. And I see them as comparable with the, the activists of today, those with the anime avatars online, the be kind mob, 
all of those bullies uh, who scream and shout and have tantrums like children, but they have incredible power at the same time. But the reason they have power is because the elites, the people in authority go along with it. They wouldn't have any power if the police said, no, we're not investigating someone for posting a meme. Or if the politician said, no, we do know what a woman is. Or, you know, the, 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 the screaming children in our society in, within this hysteria, and it is hysteria because I think a lot of them do believe their fantasies. Uh, they do believe we live in this culture full of fascists and Nazis, and you know, but they are hysterical. They are, they are not connected to reality. And uh, the comparison with Salem, I think, was an attempt to make sense of it. Because in Salem, you had just, it was only a year long, this sudden burst of hysteria. The children said they were seeing witches in every shadow and everyone believed them. The ministers, the magistrates, everyone. Or they started to say they believed them because they were fearful of being the next to be condemned. And that's the key. Mm. In today's society, you have this tiny minority. I think the last study of this by the More in Common Initiative estimated around 13% of the country would be classified as woke or within that critical social justice bracket. Very much small minority in every generation. So this idea that it's old people failing to adapt to new ideas isn't true because they're a minority in every generation, including the young. But they wield disproportionate power and control because the elites are so scared of them. Those in authority are so scared of them. So like with all hysterias, some people have bought into it. Some people are just going along with it because they're, they're afraid. Um, and I think that analogy helps us to understand where we are now and also helps us to understand how we can get out of this. Because the only reason why Salem stopped is because enough people stood up and said no. Not true. And you rightly point out that, you know, um, moral panics and, and, you know, these kind of waves in history can come from the right. Obviously, McCarthyism yeah. is an obvious example of, of where that happens. So it's not that you're coming from a left or right point of view. And you talk about, you know, that this this kind of increased pressure with silence is violence and this sort of thing. And use the example of an actress that you knew uh, who was contacted by her agent because she hadn't said enough on Black Lives Matter. And it made me think of, you know, the, you, you talk about that events, you know, of 2020. And, and, and I'll admit, in the first stages of that, and I've already said that, you know, the Queen is an, an analogy for something bigger. So I can't then discount that that moment with George Floyd doesn't have an analogy for something bigger. But it took me a while to sort of get my head around what was happening. And I remember in the immediate aftermath, I didn't do the the Instagram black square thing. And I had people contact me going, dude, you know, why, why, aren't, why aren't you doing this? And I sort of, sort of, because I don't really fully understand what's happening yet. But even if I did, I, I, I don't think that this... And there was a lot of black activists that were, were, were sort of decrying it as superficial and pointless. I don't think that me changing my thing to a colour, yeah. or, or only because, and that's the point, and this is the real point, is if I'd have done it just because I was worried about the consequences of not doing it, it's fucking meaningless. It, that's exactly right. And, and you know, that was a, the key moment where the culture war sort of escalated. It's actually the point at which people stopped accusing me of fabricating an imaginary thing, because <laughs> suddenly everyone's, the evidence of everything I was saying was everywhere. Um, mm. But yeah, you're right. It's that performative, performative element. It's actually, it was a call to conformity. That's what it was. You know, if you didn't post your black square, then you were evil. You were on the wrong side of history. It was signaling that you were, it's the same with announcing pronouns in your bio. It's, it's, it serves no purpose because no one's going to talk to you and use your pronouns. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a signal. It's a signal to say, I'm within, I'm on, on the good guys, right? I'm one of them. I'm with the girls who are crying witch. I can see witches too. Don't hurt me. Don't point the finger at me. Uh, it, so there's a self-preservation element. But yeah, you're right about, you know, this. these sort of moral panics come from the right and the left. It's a non-partisan issue. Maybe I'm more sensitive 
to what's happening now because I'm from because I'm a left winger because I'm from the left and I see that this hysteria has been perpetuated by by people who supposedly share my values and that does I maybe I've taken that personally because I think that's a real problem. Well, I I mean I sort of thought after time because I did a Radio Four special like quite a bit after. Um, Black Lives Matter and I thought actually that moment did give me pause for reflection that maybe you know the cause of greater equality perhaps I thought everything was fine and everything was sorted and maybe it wasn't as sorted as as, as I thought you know but look at the way but, it was misrepresented it became a conflict of you know there was everyone condemned the killing right that that was you know 99% mm. of people condemned the killing you know there are a few fringe lunatics who didn't but basically it was divided between those who thought that this was evidence of a systemic racist uh, problem within society as a whole, and those who saw this as a bad cop doing a bad thing, and the and the problem is that that narrative now of of, of systematized racism, which is a faith based position in a lot of cases, is is taken uh, as as red. You know, they will they will say things like, Oxford University is systemically racist. It was like it, it's one of the least racist places on earth that has ever been. Um, and all of the evidence and the data about incidents of racism at Oxford University reveal that it basically doesn't exist there. It's vanishingly rare there. It happens very rarely, right? So why disregard data in the favour of this faith, this idea? There are. But, but can we completely rule out like lived experience? I know that lived experience can yes. be over leveraged, um, but you know how people feel is not irrelevant. You know, and I think that there's reasons why. It's not it, the film. Get get out was it was it that film by Jordan Peele yeah. where he goes to stay with the so called liberal family and like that film I mean it's, it's a, an example of the power of art where I was going yeah I think he's got a point there you know like like the the sort of simmering kind of like level of of, of difference or, or judgment or, or fear so so can we can we discount that completely no um, well no I think we discount it in terms of lived experience is what we used to call anecdotal evidence and mm. we can. Uh, I think there's a lot to be learned from people's experiences and people who've gone through things that I haven't gone through. And so I would always listen. Well, I do. I spend all my time reading people's books and accounts. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think it's pointless or valueless, but I do think it should never be used to extrapolate and make broader generalizations about society because then it's flawed. Um, you know, I could say that you questioning me now, I've interpreted that, that what's happened here is, you, you don't like gay people and that you, you're you you're questioning me in this way uh, because you hate me for being gay. And I can say, that's oh, what I feel. That, Here we go. <laughs> that, you know, but that's my lived experience. That's it. And by the way, that is now official police policy. If you go on the Crown Prosecution website, it is not about, there is no evidential threshold. It is about the perception of a victim. The reason why hate crime statistics keep going up and up is because partly within those records are people who phoned up and said, I've perceived that this person has said something homophobic. Hmm. And you don't know what's in someone else's mind. So ultimately, lived experience is all very well when it comes to just illuminating discussions about people's uh, perceptions of what happened. But it is entirely useless in terms of drawing conclusions about society as a whole. The, yeah, I mean, you give like solid examples of when you talk about the capture of institutions and people would say provide evidence. And you do, you know, you talk about uh, things becoming non-crime hate incidents. And again, that spike that's gone up, you could say that maybe some of that is a realistic rise, but you could question whether all of it 
was. But the moment you call it non-crime, that really isn't necessarily the police's place to judge. And and you also, um, I'll read this one out, as you say, it hardly helps matters that the National Education Union, the largest teacher, teaching union in the United Kingdom, has said there's an urgent need to decolonise every subject and every stage of the school curriculum. The biggest teaching union is now an activist body, which is driven by an ideology that is essentially faith-based. What, where we, where we could, a more productive thing is the liberal project, is the project that I'm uh, arguing for in this book. You know, I, I want to preserve social liberalism because we've seen that social liberalism gets results. The, mm. the, the huge strides we've made in tackling racism from the 1960s through the civil rights luminaries to today are undeniable. I mean, these are incredible strides forward. We now live in uh, the least racist society on earth but not just that, the least racist society that has ever existed. So rather than pretend that we live in this horrible, evil, racist society, things have never been worse, things have never been more racist, let's just acknowledge that racism here is really, uh, is, is an aberration. Is you, you know, you won't be accepted in society if you're openly racist, and rightly so, you know, and, um, and, and tackle racism as and when it occurs. Stand up to, you know, nobody, nobody is suggesting that racism has been eradicated. Racism still exists and it's a great evil. And what I, I'm arguing for is the liberal approach to that is to tackle it and address it as and when it happens, not to imagine that it exists in these substructures and these power structures and these invisible nebulous discourses and then root it out through wholesale cultural revolution. It's, that to me is really a destructive and makes society more racist. The end point of critical uh, social justice ideology is racial segregation. This is why you end up with a situation where the American school in London is literally dividing children by skin colour for after-school activities in the name of anti-racism. We've got to tackle that. You also say something which I think was interesting about the tendency... This is something I've come around to the idea of, is dismissing the younger generation as, as snowflakes. You say it's both counterproductive and inaccurate. Uh, and so just talk us through that, your experiences on university campus and what yeah. you've actually found versus the tabloid perception. Well, I've done it quite a lot. And I, I, I've, the, the kids have always been the best. As in, you know, and it might just be the ones that are willing to turn up to, what I, you know, to hear what I've got to say. But, but yeah. I'll give a perfect example. The one that I mentioned in the book, I think, is very revealing. And this was when I went to, the, to Aberystwyth University, to the International Politics Society. And they'd invited me there to give a talk on satire and politics and um the basically the department so these are academics who are my age and older they had emailed the kids saying you've invited this guy but we're not going to help you to publicize this event or come along or support this event because we think that any anyone who takes an anti-woke position is opposed to our diversity policy right it's like they it's bizarre so they they were the ones who refused to do it and those are people who are older than me and the kids who turned up, who although a lot of them didn't agree with me, they were actually really keen to be challenged, to 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 uh, to discuss the ideas. They took me for a drink afterwards because they wanted to discuss them further. I had the same thing at uh, Oxford University. Non-alcoholic had... drink, no, eh? Fucking lightweights. Oh, exactly. They don't drink anymore, do they? <laughs> um, and the, but then um, this, these the kids at Oxford who came up afterwards saying, "Oh, I disagree with everything you've said, and I really want to talk about it more." But right? that's not a snowflake. That's not a. I don't think the like I say. 
these ideologues are a minority among kids as well. No, I I agree. And I also think that um, it's really when you look at what they've been exposed to through social media, the idea that they're easily shocked, I'm not sure that's the case. What you have is, like you say, a a small percentage with with profound ideological certainty. Yeah. But the vast majority, they know how they're perceived. I mean, I I say this again, I get a load of shit for recommending TikTok. But if you want to just see what young people are really thinking, and particularly what working class young people are, they've got brutal senses of humour about themselves and everybody else and, and and i think that you're right it's often and is often the case with you know the difference between kind of actual social justice and, and people adopting positions is it's it's people you know middle class middle-aged white people is, with a profound sense of generalized guilt but again i mean is that a syndrome that we could like diagnose like instead of like like like, like white guilt just, just just sort of abstract generalized guilt syndrome well, it's, it's, which it, you look around for reasons ways that you can fucking cleanse yourself i mean it could be to do with money because because so much of this movement mm. has come out of upper middle class background people with people from rich backgrounds and it could be yeah i mean i don't want to speculate i've no idea about the motives but it could be uh, to do with bourgeois guilt you know it could be because they've they've yeah. had everything on a plate possibly but i think again we come back to the lived experience thing maybe my lived experience of you speaking on university campuses is giving me a false view and that i just happen to have interacted with more open-minded uh, youngsters but then we go back to the data like i say the more in common initiative study which shows it's only 13 percent. it's such a minority so even of the younger age group well that's across the population which means that they are okay. a minority within the younger generation as well it will be a higher proportion yeah but they'll still be the minority. That's the key thing. Wait, wait till they get mortgages, mate. It all changes. Well, Although well, they would argue <laughs> we're never going to get fucking mortgages, which is a fair <laughs> point. Why is why is class so inconvenient to identitarians? It is, it is just striking that not all, but in, in so many cases, you know, you look at race, gender, sexuality, class is strikingly absent. Why is that? Um, well, because... Because as I say, so many of the most vociferous cheerleaders of this movement come from upper middle class backgrounds and are very independently wealthy and don't have to work for a living. And so I suppose there's there's a view, uh, we could take the view that why would you want to destabilize or, or, or class when the, the, the system works to your advantage? But that is to fall into the trap, of course, of intuiting motive, which I, I mustn't do. Um, but what I would suggest, I suppose, is that it's, it is an inconvenience because, because class is really the tangible uh, material form of oppression, which we can all see. You know, mm. if you can't afford to feed your kids, the kids die. If you can't afford, you know, you, you, if, you, if you're not, mm. uh, if you don't have that background, your opportunities are hugely limited in a way that, you know, when, when you prioritize simply gender, race, and sexuality and put them as the vectors of oppression and, 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 and re-establish quotas along those lines, what you end up with is a lot of posh, uh, ethnic minority people, posh gay people, privately educated, just being uh, artificially elevated, and they didn't need the leg up, you know. And uh, and I think focusing on class w- is the way around this because, of course, ethnic minority people are overrepresented among working class communities. The, the, this myth that you know the, the, to perceive the working class as a white body is so wrong. It's so far off. You know, the, the working class is, is hugely ethnically diverse which is also why working class people tend not to be racist, right? And this idea that the working mm. class are all these racist scum is so far 
off off the mark. Yeah, despite you know, and I've I've said this in my comedy in the past. It's just, yeah, just simply that our kids are more likely to date or marry into uh, people from different racial backgrounds. Right. Uh, more likely to work with those people. More likely to be friends with people. One of my big bugbears. And I'm I'm gonna write a bit of stand up about this. Is you know when someone says like, "Well, my best friend's black," and people kind of go, "Oh, right, the classic racist thing." You go, "Well, if his best friend really is black." Yeah. I wouldn't say you can completely discount the important in his life. Like, I mean, you talk about your best friend, yeah, the person you've shared, that you've grown together with. And, and I, I often look at those people that say that and go, I'm just thinking about your friendship group as I have seen them. Yeah. And there's a striking fucking lack of any diversity there. Well, they're, they're suggesting that dog whistle thing, aren't they? That they're, oh, they, cause they always try and guess your secret motives. So they're almost implying that you've, deliberately got a black friend so that you can say racist things you know rather than i mean like, if you wanted a business there's a business at the moment yeah. you know <laughs> you know but, but particularly for middle class liberal people who suddenly done an audit of their friendship group yeah, exactly exactly going fuck i need these photos to have a bit more diversity yeah just quickly, um, just end on a slightly silly one there. Um, just a couple of, well, one letter actually we're going to do here. There's a, someone said as a joke, um, why has he blo- why has he blocked me on Twitter? But he knows that you get asked that a lot. Just just quickly, can you just explain why you block it? Because often people say, oh, the free speech guy blocks people. Why, why do you feel that there's no tension between those two things? Because they're unrelated issues. <laughs> I mean, it's just the, the easiest way to reveal that you don't understand the principle of free speech is to complain about being blocked on Twitter and say it's a free speech issue. It's absolutely mm. the, the part of free speech is the freedom not to listen. You know, I am not threatening uh, Stephen King's freedom of speech by not reading Stephen King's books. It's, it's, he's still mm. writing the books. It, it, you know, it's fine. Um, I've been blocked by hundreds of people on Twitter, thousands. Um, and my free speech is unaffected. Here I am talking to you. It's fine. You see. It's, mm. it's, it's not a problem, but it, it, it's fundamentally people who don't understand the principle of free speech and they're looking for a gotcha. And I would say that the main reasons to block people on Twitter is that I don't waste my time with people who can't argue like adults. I don't waste my time with people mm. who just throw insults, who try and guess my motives or people who believe that being blocked on Twitter is a threat to their free speech. I think they're too stupid to engage with. So, well, that, like that, I say, it's people who are living their entire lives on Twitter probably think. Right. Well, I, you, I, know, you know, you I give can... you give them their moment. They should be fucking grateful. You give them their legendary moment in the sun, going, "Oh, blocked by Andrew Doyle." That's oh, that's I'm the happy high point that. of the. I'm, I'm happy to do that. Maybe they need that in their lives. Maybe that's important to them. You know, sometimes I just block for the hell of it. I mean, look, like, it's only Twitter. You know, I saw the other day there was a poll saying, "Have you been blocked by Andrew Doyle?" So I deliberately blocked all of that guy's followers just to, so he gets hundred <laughs> percent. I'm like, this stuff doesn't matter. Yeah, and let you know, let them have their moment of anger. I'm happy to facilitate that. I, I just I don't need to listen to it, you know. And I also, I just quite like, from a really silly point of view, I like the self own of people cl- claiming their free speech is gone because I've blocked them. That's quite funny to me. So let them have that moment. I think you should start charging for it. Yeah. You want to be blocked by Andrew Doyle? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's so clearly a badge of honour. And just last question here. I think this is a good one from Russ Palmer. Um, and by the way, loads of questions, people, big, big, big fans. Um, hi, Andy. Hi, Andy. Hi, he's calling you Andy. I think that's a bit over for a minute, but there you go. <laughs> uh, just joking, Russ, just joking. Uh, social justice doctrine is is rife uh, in, the, in the corporate sector he works for, in a large company in the UK, but it's rooted in the US, it seems that all HR policies on DE&I are now prioritised over business directives. Do you think this is now the new brand image of large every large corporation, which I think you'd probably say that they, they agree that there are quite a few that have, have put this very central. But I think the real question that I'm interested in your response is to how do we as employees address it without having to leave? Really hard, isn't it? I mean, 
you know, I understand why corporations are doing it because it doesn't cost them much. I mean, I know it seems a lot when Robin DiAngelo is charging 12 grand an hour to come in and berate white people for, for their privilege. But actually, on, in the grand scheme of things, that's much cheaper and easier to manage than actually, you know, dealing with the problems that workers face and, and paying them fairly and giving them... Is it like a form of BDSM, one of those sessions oh, where people I mean, just turn up? I think they're amazing. I'd love to go to one. Um yeah. I've invited I've her on my show. Bad. Yeah, it's 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 <laughs> I've me, been I, really bad. I love that one at, at Coca-Cola where she put up the sign saying try to be less white. That's the take home from that session. I mean That's funny. If I was gonna write a sketch on that sort of thing, that is so much funnier than right. anything I could think it's of. Brit, she's a genius. Um, but you know, she's she would be one of, she's actually said explicitly that if you say that class is the most closely connected to privilege as opposed to gender, race, or sexuality, that's a form of white supremacy, you see. So that's that, that's the sort of person we're talking about. That's in her book, White Fragility. Oh, and in her follow-up book, which is called Nice Racism, there's a really amazing passage where she talks <laughs> Again, about... Again, I couldn't come up with a funnier satirical <laughs> title than Nice Racism. <laughs> well, she talks about how uh, over-smiling is a way that we mask, as white people, we mask our essential anti-blackness. So in other words, she's saying, don't smile at black people. If you want, because otherwise that's racist. I mean, I, 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 there, there is, it's interesting that because I would think that there's a certain kind of liberal white person. I think that I've seen them do that because I think that those people that over protest, over protest do actually have some sort of residual you know issue. Ultimately, there's nothing wrong with smiling at people, right? It's Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's a weird one to go on. It's just not the big problem that, that she thinks it is. But to, to get to Russ's question, which is about how do you challenge it? Well, I think you have to, to go back to the Salem analogy, the reason it ended is because sufficient numbers spoke out. And the reason why it's still going on, the reason why people are sitting through unconscious bias training sessions, even though all of the evidence says they do nothing, they achieve nothing. It's a big waste of everyone else's time. And also it's a fundamentally illiberal thing because your employer has no right to be probing through your private thoughts. So on principle, you should object to that. On principle, you should refuse to do that. But while, but people know that if they do that, they're not gonna be the ones that get promoted next time. They might not get fired, mm. But their their card will be marked, and you know they. And I mean, it's almost like you know, like back in the seventies and that 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 women in the workplace that weren't oh you're you're no fun you are or wouldn't go along with a bit of light right. sexism exactly. or or wouldn't attend the golf days. I mean, it's just moved around. It's all the same principles, but exactly. in, in so this my, area, my, my advice is just yeah, object. Right. I mean, the, mm. you know, it doesn't matter if you're a teacher and the National Education Union is saying, you know, we should chant. What was it they got them to chant? There, there, there was it wasn't them. It was um. There was a group that came into a school and got the teachers to chant smash heteronormativity as part of a training session. And then the, the chaplain... That's a tricky chant, by the way. Oh, There's a lot of symbols in that. Trash, I can't even say it. Smash heteronormativity. heteronormativity. And then the, the chaplain who, who objected to this was then reported to prevent uh, the anti-terrorism body of the government. So what I'm saying, by the, by the school, so what I'm saying is um, it's serious, it's deeply illiberal, it's, it's destroying our education system and our corporate world. All of all employees, people need to be a little bit braver, I think, and, and accept that because you'll be surprised when, when one person raises an objection, other voices will pipe up too. It's like Salem, you know, mm. Rebecca Nurse says the girls aren't telling the truth. They hang her. But then because she said it, other people stand up and they have the courage to stand up. So the, the people through the breach first will lose out. But uh, But what's the alternative? The alternative is that this stuff keeps going. 
And I would say that, you know, before we end this week's podcast, is that I get, I'm lucky enough to get people from across the political spectrum. I get very lefty social justice types listening to this podcast. Is, is if you really have, just read the book, you know. Yeah, I mean, right. that is that I think is the minimum. And you might as well, well, I'm not giving him my money. Okay, well, in that case, you don't really get to comment uh, on what the book's about. And the book is uh, it's available. Where's the best place for you for people to buy it from? Wherever Would it be want. Amazon? Or wherever they want. Wherever it's, called, they... it's called The New Puritans. I, 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 I'm really glad you said that because I... I would love it if the people who disagree with me read what I said and engage yes. with what I'm actually saying uh, rather than what they imagine me to say, because that is utterly futile. You know, just imagining uh, arguments to address. I mean, that's a, the, your typical straw man approach. But what's the point? What's the point? And if people have criticisms of what I actually argue, I would be m- delighted uh, to address those as long as I haven't already blocked you, which, let's face it, is a chance. Yeah, so that's the thing. If you want to be blocked by Andrew Doyle, just ask him. Uh, he's got very reasonable rates. <laughs> and uh, if you want to have have a conversation, then you've got you will have to pay uh, and buy the book, and he'll engage on those terms. Listen, Andrew Doyle, thank you so much for coming back on what most people think. Thank you for having me.